This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 323, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it's Daniel. Welcome back to the program. We are here for episode 10 of the Daniel Glass podcast. Yes, I have finally broken into the double digits. It's only taken, well, far too long. And I do want to begin by apologizing for the length of time it's taken between the last podcast and this one. Uh, I've spent much of this summer, 2016, embroiled in some large-scale creative projects, and as a result of that, have not been uh, um, so good about getting my podcasts up regularly. Uh, But I I vow that um, after Labor Day, uh, I am going to do better. I'm going to get the podcasts up uh, on a regular basis. One of the aforementioned projects uh, is a new book that I am working on and have been working on uh, with uh, a Berkeley professor named Henrique de Almeida. And uh, maybe some of you out there have not heard of this gentleman. Uh, He is uh, an incredible drummer, an incredible human being. Um, He and I kind of began a mutual admiration society several years ago. We met at a PASIC, and turns out he... Uh, was actually using one of my books, or a couple of my books, uh, in his classes at Berkeley, was very interested in the history and evolution of the instrument, and we sort of began a correspondence, and uh, now we're actually working on a project together. So it's very exciting. I hope uh, our goal is to have that done and out uh, in January of 2017, so be on the lookout for that. But I want to get back to Henrique, because he is my special guest today, and um, I think, you know, as I said, he's he's been involved with the Berkeley community for a very long time, as well as a bunch of other spots. He is originally from Brazil, um, but perhaps not so well known on the on the on the larger national stage. And we aim to change that. I think that's going to be changing. He's a monster player, a great human being, and his story is very unique and very uh, unusual. I think you guys are going to be in for a treat checking this out. He's really uh, been in some interesting places and uh, down some interesting pathways that. Uh, as a drummer that most of us perhaps don't have the opportunity uh, to go. Uh, So, without further ado, I'd like to uh, introduce my very good friend and colleague, Henrique de Almeida. So, Henrique de Almeida, I'd love to welcome you to Daniel Glass, the Daniel Glass podcast, man. Welcome. Thank you so much. This is awesome. And um, just to... um Correct. The pronunciation is actually Henrique de Almeida. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, that's cool. That's, a lot of people cool. don't know that. I'm Portuguese and French, born in Brazil, and I speak Portuguese, and uh, my grandparents are Portuguese from their father's side and French from their mother's side. So it's Henrique with a very short E on the end and uh, de Almeida. <laughs> de Almeida. I got that part right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Well, you and I have recently uh, gotten to know each other. It's kind of been a, a an interesting uh, mutual mutual fan society here for a little while, but um, it's it's been really great to know you, man. And I, I wanted to get you on the podcast because you have a fantastic, uh, you've led a fantastic life, and um, you know you have a really terrific story. And 
um, I, I think people in the drumming community need to know about it. So, um, I don't know, maybe, why don't you start just uh, by, by uh, telling us briefly your, uh, kind of your, your, your past, you know, your life growing up in Brazil and uh, what, you've, what you've been doing and how you got where you are. Yeah, I, I, will, I will do that and uh, cut me off at any moment because, you know, uh, I like to talk. So you, you let me know when you want to ask something. Just stop me. So No, no worries. No. <laughs> we, don't so, we all? Don't we all? So uh, one thing that I want to mention, even before I talk to, uh, to you guys about, about myself, is um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a fan of you, Dan, Daniel. You are such a wonderful player, and we're both on the educational endeavors of, of uh, researching this music and loving the drum and the music and education. And, um, you know, it's a pleasure that we are develop, developing this friendship because um, your commitment to, uh, to music in general and the history of America and the history of American music and drumming. And, and I know you do things that are uh, with a large range, but your commitment to education, the quality of your uh, of your uh, products are just amazing. So I want to salute you, congratulate on that, and thank you uh, in name of the drum community uh, and me as a professor at Berkeley. We, we do appreciate the type of uh, knowledge nights that goes out in their lives and sacrifice so everybody can benefit. So I just want to take that out of the way and and thank you for that and say that I'm a, a fan and a, and a student as well. So. Thank you, my brother. I very appreciate it, and uh, I think when uh, when people hear your tale, they're gonna they're gonna become big fans of yours as well. So <laughs> yeah, so we are in the drum drums drum community, and drum set is really a passport. I don't I don't know any other instrument that you can that you can be in communion with a vast amount of musicians and a vast amount of uh, nationalities and. And, and different types of human beings as drummers do. So I was born in Brazil uh, in a little city, not too little, it's actually a big city, Recife. Yeah. That's R-E-C-I-F-E. And if you look at South America map, it's right on the corner, right by the water. South America on the right upper side, on the northeast, has a little tip and Recife is right there. And that's one of the places that all the ships and all is is the oldest city in South America. Linda is right there, so there's a lot of history. And of course, we have the music from the native Brazilians. Plus, a lot of Africa influence was a big port for slavery uh, trafficking and uh, just a, a, a commercial port on the beginning of the history of Brazil. So all of that, it's like the the Brazilian New Orleans is Recife. Cool with more than 60 styles of drumming, uh, frevo, masha, maracatu, samba, baião, shot, forró. I mean, I can go on and on and on of the rich, vast history and rhythms that emanates from Recife, Brazil. So I grew up listening to all this music and playing it and uh, carnival and, and playing Brazilian percussion since I was four. And I didn't start getting to drum set when I was 10. That was 1975. I was 10 years old, and I was the first time I started drum set. But So my father was a, a chemical engineer, and he loved music, and he had a vast collection of jazz records. So uh, he had the entire uh, 
he didn't had uh, access to Blue Note LPs, but he had Pablo Records. Mm. It's a, a smaller label, I guess, in New York. Very small roster, but check the roster out. At some point, it was like Dizzy Gillespie, Ray Brown, uh, Oscar Peterson, Mickey Rocker, all those cats, right? Yeah, I love Pablo. It was yes. it was a, a label that um, a lot of the great swing uh, stars of the classic swing era, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, went back and recorded on again in the 70s. Um, and so a lot of great artists like Count Basie, I remember recording yeah. a lot on Pablo and, and uh, Ella Fitzgerald, people like that. Milt Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So he had, back in the days before internet, before before that, salespeople would go to Kufatu. My dad was a, a director of a big company. And they would go, the salesmen would go and sell like an encyclopedia. Mm. So so every month you get a big book or every or every three months. And, and this collection, you didn't get the whole collection right away. You buy this thing. And once in a while you, you get the LPs on the, you, you dig, you get yeah. the... And you listen to it. So I was listening to jazz because of my dad. On the street, I'm playing all those Brazilian rhythms, right? Frevo, Maracatu, Shorty, Forró, all those Brazilian rhythms. Coming home. When you and, say on the street, you mean you were just getting together with guys and jamming? Oh, well, first of all, the way I left Brazil 30 years ago, but let's say every Sunday we get together at the house to eat. Every, most Brazilian homes, everybody plays something. Uh, acoustic guitar, so jamming. They, you know, instead of watching TV, their family would jam, you know, we'll play. We have what they call serenata, which is like a bunch of guys drinking beer. Not me. Right. I was a kid. But the, the adults, the adults would be playing acoustic guitars and uh, percussion and singing and, and playing and and eating. And as a kid, the smaller Brazilian percussion that I could hold was a tambourine. So you know what a tambourine is? It's yeah. like a. It's like a, a really, it's a samba instrument, which is about eight inches, six inches. So I played that with my fingers and my dad playing percussion, my brother playing percussion and people that we know playing guitars. So this was not even labeled as music. This is just part of you eat, you, you know, you play together. And so. And that's, and just, the, that's part of the culture in Brazil in general. Yeah. Just music goes with everything. Now, when I say on the street is as I got a little older, 12, 13 I played with my friends and we play, we have bands. And as I got a even older, like 15 and 16, I could play, we'll play on a park with a Frevo band or a samba band or a maracatu. Or, so I'm playing Brazilian music with the local people, you know, like bands. You know, you go play in front of people or even play on a theater with bands. Um, and uh, th- some of those guys are still there, passarinho, percussionist and C.D. Cruz, Ciro Cruz, uh, Don Troncho, Alceu Valença, some of those artists that later became famous and I toured them. But anyway, so I'm on the street playing Brazilian music. Were you playing uh, drum set at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. D- drum set later on, drum set, yeah. Uh-huh. Percussion at home with the family, percussion at home with the family, drum set with bands, and but playing Brazilian music at first. Mm-hmm. Coming home, listening to jazz. And of course, as I start getting a little older, all my friends, I listen to rock and roll. I was a surfer, right? I live on the beach mm. and all my surfer friends, this is now a little later, like 78. They are listening to stuff that now I'm going and buying records by Rush, Deep Purple, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix, um, you know, The Who, 
So I'm I'm buying my own records now with money that I make on those little gigs. And the the records that I'm buying, they're rock and, rock and roll records, right? Led Zeppelin and all of that stuff. The records that I'm listening from my dad, they're all jazz records. And the music that I'm playing, not with my school surf buddies, but with the local guys, are Brazilian music. So I grew up listening to everything. And as I got older, I start studying fusion music, you know, Mahavishnu Orchestra. So... As a as a kid, like when the seventy hits, I was aware of Buddy Rich, Jimmy Krupa, Papa Joe Jones, and all the rock guys, Mitch Mitchell and Led Zeppelin, and all the Brazilian guys. So it's really interesting. Then my dad makes friends with a guy from the Canary Canary uh, Canary Islands, and this guy brings some records for me from a band called Funnier All Stars. Oh yeah. And holy moly, man, that's the first time I started hearing cowbells. And this is like 79 or 1980, 80 something. And then I got into Afro-Cuban music, which later I went to Cuba and all that. But So the, so, so the, so Fania All-Stars, again, just by way of explanation, Fania was a record label here in New York City that was that really got into the heavy uh, uh, salsa and, and uh, Afro-Cuban jazz stuff in the 70s, I believe. Was it in the 60s, too? I don't know. But um, certainly, like some of the real first heavy, intense New York Afro-Cuban kind of Puerto, Puerto Rican stuff and all of that coming together, yeah, that stuff was on fire. Yeah, that was, I mean the cowbells and the timbali and the montunos and the, and it was different. You know, it was very. I I was just so excited and I I went right away and buy, bought cowbells and started listening to that. So, so just for people who I mean, you know. Who may somehow think that Brazilian music and and Cuban music are related? They actually are two completely different traditions, right? I mean, when you were hearing this music, it's not like something that was necessarily familiar to you. It is familiar because it was not familiar familiarized to me. But you know the way the way that on the old days, how people was traveling, they first needs to hit the Recife first. They hit Brazil first, mm. they, then they go up to the to the um, Central America, which you call in South America. We call those islands above us Central America. We don't call them South America, Central America. That's all the Canary Islands, even Jamaica and in Cuba and in Puerto Rico and all that. Then they go to the U.S. and mm. then they go to New Orleans. You mm. see, mm-hmm. so they hit us first. So, so there is music. Where those boats are coming from, the different parts of Africa, you know, Angola, Mozambique, whatever, there is traces on this music. There is similarities. You're correct. They're very different music, but you can trace. You can you can have uh, some African uh, Angola music, uh, West African music, uh, Mozambique, and all those places, and you Congo, and you can compare to Brazilian music, to Jamaica music, to. Uh, Puerto Rico music to Cuban music and New Orleans music, and you're gonna find commonalities on the DNA. And the thing, what I think makes Brazilian drummers hip, is politically whatever happened in Europe and the United States affect Brazil directly, and it's still like that. So a Brazilian child, he's aware of rock and roll, jazz, Afro-Cuban, European music, classical music. He's aware of everything, mm-hmm. and he listens to everything. And if you go to Bahia. Afro-Cuban music is very heavy in Bahia. I don't know why it's that. I think it's because a lot of people go there. I don't. I never studied the reasons for it. Mm. So, 
like when when I went to college, when I left Brazil after high school, which I'm going to jump there and I go back a little bit, I was aware of all this music already, you see? Yeah. I, it, it's a, so as I progressed, but you, you are correct. The first time I heard Afro-Cuban music in Recife, Afro-Cuban music was not popular at the time. Mm. I don't know now, but but no, you wouldn't go and see a salsa band downtown, you know. Right. You had. But anyway, so... So now I have this stuff, and then so so I, this this variation of that music was fresh to your ears, I guess you might, yeah, you might say, yeah, especially especially the Montuno on the piano because mm. we have congas and all that in a different context, yeah, and, and the cowbells, yeah, yeah, which which now is part of my kit. Since then, my kit has uh, one, two, three cowbells, and it's part of my. I can't go anywhere without my cowbells, right? So, <laughs> right. So the cowbells, the, the, that was the thing. Yeah. So, so, by the way, just it's a really interesting point you make about how the slave ships came, you know, first to Recife or to South America, then up through the Caribbean and then up to New Orleans. And it really makes a lot of sense because I think a lot of times in America, people only think about uh, slavery as being something that was in the United States. But obviously it was up and down, particularly on the, the east side, you know, of of uh of central america caribbean uh yeah, there and, was no, and south america so there was no direct flight brother <laughs> right and right then, but there they, but there are those those same kind of things that happen in places like new orleans happened in many other places and and evolved into into the, the music that we come to understand is from that region today so it's cool anyway so it's a cool point yeah and uh so so this is what's this is what's happening with me Right before I start to make my mind about, you know, getting bands together and all that, you yeah. see? So then then I start playing bands, bands and uh, mixing all that, and start meeting people that are coming back from Berklee College of Music, right? Mm. So guys that are graduating from Berklee College of Music and come back into my city and and introducing me to this whole world of, of jazz and fusion music. I had a friend, bass player. He was a teacher at the conservatory, and he was the bass player of one of the symphony orchestras in Recife. So he's the guy who hooked me up to very – he changed my life, this guy, because, because – and this is all listening, right? Nowadays, we don't talk about that. But this, uh, back on the day when I was a kid in 1970s, and what, what, really, what was really happening was a lot of listening happening, yeah. a lot of listening. And so – this guy changed my life because can you imagine I'm listening to Miles Davis for the first time. I'm listening to, to Weather Report for the first time, Jack Pastores and all those guys. And it was was and, and it's funny now I'm 50 years old. I'm looking at this 30, 40 years old ago. And this music that I was listening to them back then is still my foundation today. Mm, you know, yeah. so then I start playing bands and my dad was really upset that I want to be a drummer. And uh, he is an engineer, and, and he said, okay, if you want to be a drummer, I'm going to take you to the conservatory. Dig this name, conservatory, right? Mm-hmm, right, so, right. So he enrolls me Sounds there. respectable. Yeah, so he enrolls me there. I'm scared, and I start learning solfege and harmony and, and lessons and stuff. So I graduated from the conservatory, went to a private music school, and then in high school, I start playing with big-name people like uh, – Alceu Valença, which is like a big pop star in Brazil, like playing soccer stadiums. This is before Berkeley, before I went to Berkeley. Wow. So I was touring all over the country, and I have records 
we can put links. You can find some of those recordings on iTunes of me playing, playing. This is another whole life playing frevo music, playing Brazilian rhythms at the highest level with the guys who has ownership to the music and the, those artists. They are part of the Brazilian popular music history, right? So, so I did all that before Berkeley, and we used to tour in Europe and United States. And I visit Berkeley, and I freak out, and I want to go to Berkeley, and I quit this. Pretty much, it's a different culture, so I wouldn't say a rock star, but I, I gave up a life that was, like, really great because it's not a regular life, right? You're touring all over the world. You, you're living like a king, and you're just like a teenager, and you're recording. I was recording for soap opera uh, um, soundtracks, which is a big deal in Brazil at the time in the 80s, and recording for television and doing sessions. And I quit all that because I want to go to Berkeley. I want to study. I, I already had a lot of discipline, practicing. And and um, so I quit all that and I go to Berkeley College of Music. How old were you at this point? Uh, probably 20, you know, so it's like after high school. My my last year of high school, I missed all the classes. And I, would do, I remember sitting on the room doing my test by myself because I was playing with somebody that everybody knew it's like being with Sting or something, you know. Yeah. So I wouldn't attend classes, but they let me go and do my task. I I passed the task by studying on the road, and uh, you know, when I come to town on a show, everybody would be you know asking to get in and you know whatever. But I remember many stories. I have to share that one with you. You know, you know, like every time I did a sound check on a big like on a sock. Somebody always managed to get in, right? Illegally, mm -hmm. like drummers. Yeah, there was always drummers on the stage. And although I was just seventeen, eighteen, I said, "Wouldn't it be cool if I let those guys on the stage and play my drums on the sound check? They'll freak. They'll never forget that, right?" Mm. So, I, so I used to do that. I used to uh, let security. Like this is on the afternoon, nobody's there, but there was always drummers checking me out. Right? I said, "Come on up," and the security would be mad at me and they're coming up and after. <laughs> After the artists would do what they have to do, right before I yeah. go back to the bus, she said, go ahead, man, sit down on the drums. They'd be like, what? I said, yeah, sit down and check it out, the drums. And I did that in a lot of cities, and I, and I thought that was great because I bet they would never forget that, you know, that they go, somebody let you go up there and they hit the drums and you hear the big sound on the yeah. back. Back on those days, you got the big PA system. Remember that, the big, the big towers. Oh, of yeah. So that was a fun life. Then I quit all that, and now I'm a student. I go to Berkeley, and uh, uh, funny story, I was not even accepted until the third try, you know. I was denied three times to go to Berkeley. Now I'm a professor there. Life is funny, huh? Huh. So, so uh, and that's another whole conversation, but I, I will sneak this in. If you listen to this and if you are a young artist, don't listen to people that are telling you you can't do something because – I love jazz and I want to play jazz. Everybody told me I couldn't do it. I want to go to Berkeley. People said I couldn't do it. I go to Berkeley as a percussionist. I want to change the jazz composition. They said I couldn't do it. So I, I, I'll stop here. But I tell you, I have a whole list of items that people said I couldn't do it. So just ignore them because you don't know the power. The power of God is amazing. You know, I, I did. I have my whole life is a whole miracle. Everything that they said you can't do it. Just ignore that. Surround yourself with fire lighters, people that are positive to your life, that loves you, that you respect them. And, uh, you know, within reason, right? I, I, you know, within reason. But, uh, 
But yeah. anyway, so I like that. Park, I like that term, fire lighters. That's good, man. That's a good. Right? Uh, that's right? a good you way wanna, to put it. Yeah. You want to be with somebody that you say, "Man, I'm thinking about that," and the guy says, or the girl, or whatever. Yeah, Daniel, man, you can do it, man. Let. <laughs> yeah, you go for it, man. You go, Daniel. You can do it. Blah blah blah. Right. I, I think that anybody that makes that that goes for it and makes a living in in what we do, however they do it, performer, educator you know, uh, whichever path they take is, is already, you know, just the fact that, uh, that you, that you're making a living, you know, or that, that you're following your dreams is, is already a huge thing. You know, it's a thing that most people are too afraid to do and that, that they they listen to the voices that say, well, this is impossible and you'll never do this. And, you know, don't bother to follow your dreams because it's not going to come true anyway, you know, and all that, all that nonsense, you know, so it's, uh, it's uh, I, I agree a hundred percent. And and if if you really want it, you figure out a way to make it happen, and and it will. You know, you just have to to keep going and uh, and be be strong and hang out with the firelighters, man. <laughs> yeah, and another, I'll share another thing. Let me finish this little pathway, and I come back to some really deep here that I want to really share. That's more important than anything I will tell. But I'll go, yeah. I'll go, I'll go back to this to this thing that I'm gonna share with you guys. Um, so when I went to Berkeley. During the time I got to Berkeley until the time I graduated, that was between 1988 and 94. That's when I got all this experience of studying this music. And then what happened? I had the knowledge, but I had not tested the knowledge, right? You acquire knowledge, then you have to test the knowledge. So then I test the knowledge because I played Afro-Cuban music with the best Afro-Cuban music, some of the best in the world. I played with Giovanni Hidalgo, mm. with uh, Hilton Ruiz, David Valentin, Victor Mendonça. They're real cats. Shangito uh, used to hang a lot there at Berkeley, but especially Giovanni Hidalgo. So I played, I had a chance to develop the Afro-Cuban music. My Afro-Cuban music experience was primarily with Latin jazz guys, right? Then, of course, I continued playing with the Brazilian guys, developing that. So that was already well developed. Then I played big band music with Phil Wilson, who played with the Body Rich Band and all those guys. Then I played with Wayne Noss, which was also Body Rich first trumpet player. And um, all those guys, Gregory Hopkins, a lot of the guys that Steve Smith played, you know, when Steve mm. was there at Berkeley. Uh, all, so a lot of people that played with Buddy Rich, Tony Bennett, Louis Bell, all those cats that are teaching at Berkeley start hiring me to play big band. So all of a sudden, I got the big band experience and the Afro-Cuban experience and the Brazilian experience. And then I start playing with the fusion guys, Baron Brown from Vine Information and uh, Matt Garrison that plays with, uh, um, you know, Zoe Zavinou and Joe McLaughlin and those great, guys. Uh, son of uh, Jimmy Garrison, right? That's right. Player, that's yeah. right. And... Uh, and a great Steve Smith, which I mean, uh, Steve Hunt, which is uh, Steve Hunt is a great fusion keyboard player who played with Alan Holsworth, and um, he plays uh, with Vinnie Colaiuta, Shad Workman, and you know Gary Husband, all those guys, and we still play together. We just recorded something a few weeks ago, so so now I got the fusion going, the Brazilian thing, the Afro-Cuban, and I did I did some rock stuff once in a while. I I go out and do, I just did something last summer with David Ellison from Megadeth. A hmm. uh, couple of things. So, so it's like a a life that it's you know. And I went on the road with Steve, with Steve uh, last January playing a jazz trio, upright bass, acoustic piano, and a little kid, you know, playing very soft. With, so you with have Steve Hunt. Steve Hunt, yeah, yeah. Steve Hunt. And uh, so, so now you have those that experience, and I think that's how later, you know, I left all that and I joined the Air Force Band, 
And then I went to do 13 years of concert band, classical music, and big band, and marching band, and all that stuff. I went, I did a well, master's. Let, yeah. let, let's just take a step back. So, yeah. how long were you actually a student at Berkeley? How many years were From you? From 88 to 94. Wow, six years. Yes. Amazing. So, uh, you, you got your degree, you were hanging out in Boston, you were studying, you were gigging, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it took a long time for two reasons. One, uh, I was all of a sudden I'm playing with the teachers, right? I'm on the road, going on the road with the teachers. And the other thing is I would go out and play and was very weird to go back to school at that age because I was already a pro, you know? Yeah. And then the money situation was a little funny too. So it was financial things and also musical things. But yeah. So what what prompted you then after six years of being in the Boston area and, and working in, in, in those circumstances, how did you get involved with the U.S. Air Force? Because I think for a lot of people, that would seem like a huge right turn, you know? Right. Well, I did a mistake of getting married in college. My first marriage was in college. And very quickly, I thought about, oh, I got to get a job now. You know, it's, it's fun to play fusion tours and all that, but that's not really paying a mortgage. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So, so... I I was offered, you know, Casey Shirell, the drummer, the fusion drummer, sure, Casey, Casey Shirell. Yeah, Casey Shirell, yeah. He was trying to help me out because here I am, like, I was like this talent guy and, you know, really loving the drums and playing with everybody. But, you know, I want a, I want a better life, you know. So he helped me. He gave me a full scholarship with a phone call. He called Southern Miss Dr. John Wooten, which is a monster player. He, he plays classical music. He's a marching band expert. He plays everything, drums, Brazil. He's kind of like an embodiment of all what I did in my life. He plays steel band. He has a steel band, band, Afro-Cuban band, a Brazilian band. He's classical trained in military uh, drumming. This guy's amazing anyway. Yeah, so, John Ken Wooden, said, yeah. so, so, okay. So, so that's when your experience at, uh, um, was it Southern Mississippi University? Yeah. Check this out. Case called this guy and said, hey, man, you need a guy. This is the guy. This is the guy. And John, are you sure? He said, yeah. So Casey has such a reputation. That was it, man. I never went there. When I went there, I packed and went. Wow. Right? So then we had to do the paperwork backwards once once I get there, which I thank God they didn't say, oh, no, you, you're not the guy. I was the guy. So I got the job to be a teaching assistant and go to a master's degree full ride for free, right? So at that time, John Wooten, instead of teaching, I already had all this Berkeley instructions right on the drum set i did all the labs and stuff so what he did that i didn't know was the the rudimental drumming to a highest level possible right so what i did with him he taught me other things too but two things that changed my life there was one rudimental studies to the highest level possible i mean if you guys want to check him out go check him out man it's serious stuff yeah dr john wooten is 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 the deal He's definitely, definitely the real deal. That's no joke. Just to give an example, you know, the, the Wilcox and books, I, I play that thing back, front to back, probably several times. That stuff is on my brain now. And uh, so anyway, and then he kind of helped me with vibraphone, the marimba, timpani, all the other classical things that I was not very good at. Hmm. So that, that orchestral training came from him. And because of that, when I graduated, they hired me as a teacher. So I was doing a couple of uh, ensembles and a bunch of students. And the Air Force Band program used to send me flyers for me to post at the school. 
So I was trying to get a full-time teaching job in a college, just applying for everything. Nobody was answering back, so I sent a, a email to this uh, or a letter. I can't remember what I sent, whatever package, mail a package to the Air Force Band program. And they, they responded right away. They called they're very fast, and they said, we're going to fly you over here. We have a big band if you want to audition. So they're kind of very aggressive and very fast. So all of so, a sudden— So let me, let me interrupt you, Enrique, yeah. because— uh, uh, when you were down in Mississippi, you also got another kind of education that you and I have talked about that has that's sort of exactly in the opposite direction from, you know, the very technical kind of stuff that you had been doing, being that you were in the Deep South, you know, and you started playing in bands down there. So, you know, I, I share this story because it's a, yeah, it's a really cool, 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 it's such cool, an yeah. amazing, so you know. So now you got a you got a Brazilian guy in Mississippi, so two things happen. <laughs> Brazil, they, yeah. they, they talk to me, I don't know what they're saying, right? I don't know what they say because they, they talk. It's a, they talk different there over there, right? I'm yeah, coming they from, do. from Boston. It's very close, and I don't know what they say. And Although they, they talk know. pretty different in Boston too. That must have been an interesting accent for you. Well, to but Boston was like my second home from right, home. Right, right. So, so I go to Mississippi. They talk. I don't know what they say. And I'm the only Brazilian on the planet there. I I, I increase the population by Brazilians by one, right? <laughs> so when I talk, they think I talk funny. When they talk, I don't know what the heck they saying, right? So then. What happened was like right away, uh, John Wooten is trying to help me find gigs and stuff. So I meet the I meet this blues guitar player. His name is Vastai Jackson, and wow. he played with Bib uh, King, and he's the music director for Katie Webster, which is the queen the queen of the boogie oogie. Katie Webster, a huh. very important artist. He, he's she's an innovator of the boogie oogie, right? She's dead now, anyway, but. I didn't know that yet. I'm just playing with Vice Jacks. When I got the gig with Vice Jacks, which is like a, you know, blues. And that was a, when I got the gig with him, people say, oh, you're the drum of the week. Because he fired drummers every week. Uh-huh. And I stayed with him for years, right? But what I learned with him is all those different blues that was not Berkeley blues, was not jazz blues or, or fusion blues. They have a lot of, as a matter of fact, I did a paper on that because I never saw that many blues, man. It's like, it's like all kinds of form. That's a whole other podcast, but it's a lot of different blues, out of time blues, all time blues, all the forms that's not 12 bar. And I'm playing this blues band with him. Then all of a sudden. Yeah. Hurt. And I, and you know, I wrote a 150 page book about the blues. So I, I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, every, probably you could write a 150 page book about the blues that would be different from my 150 page book because there's, it's so deep, you know, there's, and every region is different. And, Every era is different, you know, so it's incredible I tell you stuff. What, I tell you what, boy, the, the stuff I know now, I, I, I get, it's like, it's like country drumming, okay? If you go to the South, think you're going to cut those gigs, good luck. Yeah. It takes a lot of training because it's a whole other language, a whole other vocabulary, a whole other sets of, it's a whole other world. Yeah. You know, the blues is a whole other world. Anyway, so then also at the same time, I'm a lucky guy, man, because can you imagine? I'm playing blues with the Mississippi guys now, right? It's like going to school, right? Yeah. And then I've got John Wooden teaching me all this rudimental stuff, which is totally different. And I'm driving to New Orleans just about every week to play New Orleans music in New Orleans. And I'm subbing for Johnny Vidakovich, right? Wow. And the first gig I subbed for him, I swear, I, I'm, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but I say that without a heavy heart. The first gig I saw for him, the piano player, I got to I gotta remember his, Ronnie Coles, I think his name. I don't know his name. He said, that's the first, 
one of the best second lines I ever heard in my life. I was like, frame, that's a, de that's a degree, right? Somebody say that, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, from a Brazilian guy. So I'm playing at those New Orleans grooves. All of a sudden, Bill Summer here from me. Bill Summer, this guy calls me and says, hey, I want to, I'm talking to Henrique. I said, this is here. He said, hey, my name is Bill Summer, man. I want to meet you. Everybody's talking about you here in New Orleans. I want to talk to you. And I. Is this Bill Summer from the Headhunters? Hold on a minute. Let me tell you a story. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> this is good stuff right here. Yeah. So he said, who you play with? So, you know, I'm young and stupid. I'm I'm dropping names like you're dropping coins on the floor. And then I go like, how about you, man? Who you play with? He said, oh, just play. He was kind of playing down a little bit. Yeah. And then I keep insisting. I want to know who the guy is, right? I said, so who who you play with? He said, you know, you've never heard of me, Bill Summer. I said, do you Bill Summer, D Bill Summer? He said, yeah, yeah, man. I'm a Bill Summer. That's Harry Hank. That's one of the founders of the Headhunters. Yeah, yeah. I was like, damn, man, I'm sorry. And we laughed on the phone and said, can you come to my house? I said, when? He said, can you come tomorrow? Can you come to my house tomorrow? I said, yeah, I'll go tomorrow. So he gave me the address. So I'm going to Bill, Bill Summer's house. And then I go in there and we meet and I start. And I thought he wanted me. He said, I want to. We jam. And then he said that, man. He said. He said to his band, he said, this is a real drummer. He said, you know, he played with the best drummers in the world, right? So another degree. So this is this is good affirmation for me, you know? Yeah. Then I thought, he said, come tomorrow. I thought I was going to play drum the next day. Guess what? He put me on his bata band. You know what a bata drum is? Sure, yeah. So now I'm playing bata <laughs> drums with Bill Summers, playing New Orleans stuff, subbing for Johnny Vidaka, which is people. Doing marching band with Wood and travel with the blues band. I mean, that's 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 as as uh, diversified. These all later. This is all gonna come in. That's why I got the gig at Berkeley because it, this is all coming together. Yeah. Now, when I was in color, now later on. So so I'm doing this stuff right, and then one day he goes, "Hey, Katie Webster, uh, Vasai Jackson, Katie Webster's drummer can't go on tour because he's with uh, Little Richard." He's going on the road with Little Richards. And, and here's another thing you guys need to know. I'm in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and it's near Mobile and all, the, all these places that you never heard about. Hey, I got news for you guys out there. All those big gigs, man, they go get those drummers in the South. There is drummers you never heard about. They're killing it. You go on the street, you see people, amazing drummer you never heard. And guess what? You know who heard about them? Uh, uh, what's his name? Um John Scofield goes there. Little mm. Richards goes there. All those big names, they go to the South and hire those guys because mm -hmm. they have they have some different, you know? They got the grease, man. Yeah. Anyway, so now he gives me this bag. Back then, it's cassettes, right? Cassettes. Yeah. A bag of cassettes for me to listen to and start making charts. And I go to his house, just for him and I, and we go over those songs. And then he said, okay, man, here's the tickets. We meet, uh, you know, tomorrow in the airport. We're going to go. So the first gig was the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. No, no, it was St. Saint, Saint, Saint Louis Blues Festival. Is this still playing Bata now? Or are you playing no, drum no, no, this is Vastai Jackson. Oh, blues, Vastai Jackson. The blues guy, the oh, blues, is this right? the Katie Webster thing then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I never met her, right? So I'm on the Sahara Hotel and Casino. And then 3 o'clock, I go in the van and I'm talking to a bunch of people. Now I'm first touring because these gigs I'm doing to that point, it's just local gigs, right? Now I'm on tour. Now I'm on tour with the blues guys. So now I'm talking to all those legends. I don't know who they are, right? Because I was on the jazz fusion world. I was not on the blues world. So I'm talking to those guys, and Vastai used to make fun of me. And you know who that was that you're talking to? Such and such. 
You know who that is? That's ZZ Top. Do you know who that is? That's all those big names. So we go to a sound check. We got an event. This is a great life story. Katie Webb is sitting in front. She doesn't know me yet. I got an event. She she says she's dressed like nice, like she's going to church or something. She asks Vastai, where is such and such? She's asking for her drummer, right? Oh, he's not here. So I was like, oh, then she doesn't even know I'm on the gig, you know? <laughs> but we got Henrique, and Henrique is this and that. So he spent five minutes talking about what I do. And I was like, wow, I was feeling really good. By the time he ended, I thought I was body rich, right? <laughs> right. So, so you know what she said? We can't cast on the podcast, right? But she said, uh, I don't know who this mother plip is. I want to know if he can play, play my plip. You know, translation, I do the not X-rated version. She said, I don't know who this guy is. I, I just want to know if he can play my music. She didn't care about this whole introduction. She was, can he play my ass, right? Can yeah. he play? And I was like, wow, what a life lesson, right? You know? What a life lesson. What matters really is the service that you're going to provide. So yeah. So, so we go on that. And I, I just want to interrupt for one second because also I think this this applies exactly what you said earlier. I wanted to jump in about it. But that, you know, we tend to think, oh, you know, I'm located in a place where nothing is happening, quote, unquote, you know, so southern Mississippi. Well, oh, nothing's happening down there. It's not Nashville. It's not New York. It's not L.A. It's not Chicago or whatever. But in reality, you know, there's stuff happening everywhere. There's great stuff happening everywhere. And it's it's like if you have the, you know, if you got, if you're inside the music, then you can make it happen wherever you are. And this is exactly what you're saying is, is the perfect example. It's great. It's just great. So, uh, okay. So you start working uh, with Ms. Webster. So, so she goes to her trailer. The music director look at me and say, hey, calm down. Okay. Here's what's going to go down here. He didn't say like that, but that's how I remember, right? Yeah. So he said, keep an eye on her. And he said to me, you remember the first day you played with me? I said, yes. He goes, he said, put your claws out. That's what he said. Mm. Put, your, put your claws out. You put know what that means? Put your claws out. No, I don't know what that means. Put your claws out on the blues word means like, man, you're going to give 100%. You're going to be paying attention. Your claws like a tiger, you know, like mm. your claws are dig out. In, dig in, dig in. You like, you're not going to miss nothing. Yeah. He said, keep an eye on her and put your claws out. That's what he's... Vastai, by the way, Vastai Jackson, he is a very intense cat, man. He would be playing a festival like 20 feet from me. If I, if I did something a little like a little... He would look at you. Mm. It's, it's, he, he wants perfection. Well, it, was, it was good for me, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the time and all that. Anyway, so I'll so, watch it. In the sake of time, let's move forward to the, to the Air Force. Uh, okay. To your experience with Air Force, so you were so, you were looking for a gig, basically. Yeah, but that gig, that yeah. gig, she likes me so much. I, I I went, I did more gigs with her, right? You so worked that's, with her for that's, a while. Yeah, that's the punchline of the story. She sure. looked at me on the end and said, "I like you. You're very complimentary." Vasta, I take him on the road and blah blah blah. But anyway, so that's great. That's great, now man. let me go deep for one second. Let's yeah. talk about something that's really important because it's cool to chat about stuff and share stories but let me let me go deep to something that's important to me and i think is important for your listeners that little story was the first time in my life that i understand what it is to be of service mm. right and then if you're questioning like why do you need to listen to me why should you listen to henrik dialmeda guy that you never heard about i'm gonna give you a few reasons that you should okay one Four years after I graduated from Berkeley, I bought my first house with drumming, right? And I make a good living with music. And if you want to do that, you have to understand 
that you have to align your passion and your dreams with service. Mm. If you only think about yourself and how good you are, and you're going to tell the world that you're a great drummer, that you do this and that and that and that and that, it's kind of cool for you, but it's not helping me, right? It's not helping humanity. Find a way to help other people with something that you're good at. If you go on a gas station, they have gas. They help. This helps me. I'll pay for the gas, put gas on my car. So if you're on a band, on a rehearsal, on a recording session, on a gig, or if you're teaching, whatever you're doing, figure out immediately what are you there to do? What are you there to do? Yeah. Did you go there to show everybody how good you that you can play seven against three or show your drum set abilities? Are you there to make music? What are you there for? So the day that I understood that, uh, Daniel, my life changed. Mm, and yeah. that was the beginning of that, right? So then when I joined the Air Force, because I got that plane ticket, audition for the big band, and I got the gig with the Air Force, then I had to join the military. And then when I got to the band program, they had, it's like working for agents. They have a concert band, which is a kind of an orchestral music. They have a marching band, a jazz big band. They have jazz combos. They have rock bands and country bands and military bands, right, to play marches. So your job as a bandsman, you play orchestral music, rock music, country music, military music, jazz, and you do that whenever they need it and how they want you to do. So my for 13 years, I had to play whatever you tell me to do, I have to deliver it. And I don't have a really say about how how I'm going to do it. They're going to tell me, the music director of each of those bands tell you what, I mean, you can, you have some interpretation, but what it taught me was develop the skill to provide a service yeah. to the gig. And and that's what I did, you know. So I was going to say one thing about the blues, just just jumping back. Um, yeah, I think blues music, I mean, with, with my band Royal Crown Review, we played a lot of sort of, you know, not, not so much country blues or like Chicago style blues. We played rhythm and blues, you know, real more swing, um, swing, yeah, swing right? style blues, but, but, you know, Lewis Jordan, you know, that kind of. And, and and forward. And I think blues in general, as a drummer, the idea of service, if you really dig into the style, that really becomes very apparent because it's not music that's based in flashy drum parts at all. It's it's a groove music, but there's so much depth to the groove to all and all the varieties that you were talking about that you learned about down there, all the varieties I've written about in my book, that there's a huge world within that, you know, within the groove. So it it taught me you know, when I first joined Royal Crown, uh, my attitude was very different than after I got into it. And and after a while, my directive became, how can I make this pocket scream in? How can I dig deep into this thing? Uh, as opposed to how can I put the hippest fill over this spot right here? You know, uh, particularly on those blues songs. We had other songs that allowed me to kind of stretch more, but it's a discipline. And I think uh, after a while, I love the way you put it, that you're you're being of service, you know, that what, yeah. How are you? How are you serving this music? How are you serving the artist? How are you serving the audience? How do you play a role in making the greater thing be great? You know, not yeah. not necessarily and you be great. W- one thing that I think is very unique is at the time, I was I was never surrounded by people that was doing what I was doing. I was visiting everybody's tribes or nations, musical nations. Yeah. But they they could not visit my nation because I would be doing a record on samba songs, playing Brazilian percussion, playing cuica, pandeiro, all of samba stuff. Then I would go and play blues gigs, which is like just the pocket. And then I'll be playing with a big band that had extensive 
drum set solos yeah. and very creative. And I would be playing on a jazz trio that was a guy from New York, uh, uh, Rick Swim, that was basically, he was into Ornette Coleman and all that stuff. And this is all at the same time. That's great. You know? So not only I was doing different music, like New Orleans music, blues, marching band music, rudimental music, Brazilian music, Afro-Cuban. Then I go play Bata with Bill Summers, and which is a very polyrhythm. It's very hard music, if you listen to this music. Yeah, and yeah. this is all how my life, which is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because, you know, you become this kind of a international, I consider myself a world musician because I have all those influences. But the amount of disciplines that I need to just to maintain uh, the music that I teach and that, that I play, it's really, uh, it's a lot of work too, you know. It's a mm. lot of commitment. And, but, you know, it's very interesting to see, understanding what is your role on those different types of music, you know, on Afro-Cuban music and Brazilian music and big band music and rock music and fusion music. Uh, just to give you one example of two extremes, right? When I played in big bands, I really catch all the kicks and set up all the figures. And then I go on the road with Steve Hunt playing fusion music. He hates that. He wants you to know what the kicks are, but he wants to play around it. Mm. And, and that was like a contra. That was that was difficult for me to get used to that because that you know after th those years playing big band music, now I got to look at those things. And play around the figures, but don't play the figures. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. But anyway, yeah, yeah. so I thought that was interesting. So you you were 13 years with the Air Force. Yes, sir. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. a that's a chunk. And, and what what then? What took you into the next phase, going from the Air Force? Were you were you touring with the Air Force? Or yeah, all over the world. All over the world, and all I probably went all 50 states many times, man. Wow. And then if you guys want to take a little taste of that. If you go to cdbaby.com, you can download two of the records that I'm very proud of. It And they're like, I swear, they're like pumping, man. One is called Sharing the Freedom. Yeah. It's the Falconeers Contemporary Big Band, which, by the way, I just did tracks on Drew Mail last year. I played two tracks from that record. And I just, a few months ago, I did another two. But that, that CD is free, uh, Sharing the Freedom. The other one is an orchestral record called The Speed of Heat which I played classical percussion, but also there is a drum set feature playing the music of Pat Metheny. So I play, I'm featuring a song called uh, Gathering, The Gathering Sky, very difficult, yeah. and, and a couple of piano concerto. But those, those records are amazing records. Yeah, Great. I checked out, I actually went to CD Baby just in getting ready for this interview and checked some of that stuff out, and it's, it's incredible. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, you don't think... When you listen to stuff, you're like, oh, the Air Force. Well, wow, that's not what I think about when I think of the Air Force. But obviously, you know, the... They, they, they have, I'm not saying me. The Air Force premier bands, there is yeah. just, they, they'll kick your ass. Yeah, they oh, will, yeah. They're, yeah. They're, they're world-class level, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's a, and I tell you why, too, because we rehearse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? and you they, play. You play a lot of yeah. gigs, old school, yeah. you know. You're, yeah. That's yeah. how you get that good, is that you, you play in every day, you know. And, yeah, uh, and they do, uh, they record videos, they do records, and... I think the amount of gigs, it's unbelievable, the yeah. amount of gigs. Yeah. And it keep, so anyway, so... Great. So how'd you then, get back to Berkeley then? How do you, how do you wind so, up back, back at Berkeley? So I became a permanent member of the Air Force Academy. It's a special contract because if you're really good, they, you go to the Premier Band. The Premier Band means that you have secret clearance 
and you play for the pre I played for Bush, I played for Obama, I played for the Secretary of Defense, you play for presidents of all the nations. So you can't suck musically and you also cannot be a criminal, right? You have to be kind of a somewhat sane to be maybe, on the Maybe those two are related that sucking at music is you are a criminal if you suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, uh so then they changed the whole thing. After September 11, a lot of things changed, and I did a lot of military work. So I did a supply, then I did personnel, then I became a ATO, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go deep into that, but it's like involved military work. And I did other, other types of work that are related to the things that happened after September 11. So I deployed. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Iraq. Uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, uh, you know, I deployed and I got married again. And um, and uh, my wife had a baby, Max and Miles. So I said, maybe it's time for me to do other other things. And then um, I sent, I did a record, uh, some recordings with Steve Hunt, some fusion stuff, really cool stuff. And I sent to the to the chairman of the Berkeley Department, and he said, "Man, you should go to New York." You know, I mailed back and go like, "Ha ha, do you have a job for me?" He said, "I can't give you a job, but actually, there is an opening." But you have to go to a process. You can email this. There is a committee, and Mike Mangini quit Berkeley because he went to Dreamy Theater, and his position is open. So I don't know. You know, you give a shot. So I applied. To make a long story short, um, there's a lot of people applying. You know, uh, the guy from The Voice, Billy. Uh, what is the name of the piano player? Billy, the guy who wrote New York. Uh, uh, what's his name? Billy Joe's drummer applied. Mm. The guy from The Voice, the guy from the America. I mean, all those heavy hitters applied. Yeah. But, you know, I went from 80 to 7 to 50 to 40 to 15 to 5. I was a five finalist. I, I fly over there for a whole day of interview. Um, I presented a master class in front of this, this panel. My first student was a Terry Lynn Carrington student. Terry Lynn Carrington is the drummer of um, Herbie Hancock and sure. Wayne Shorter. Has student. Yeah. So by the time I finished with this guy, he looked at the pen and said, hire this guy. This is the best drum lesson I ever had, blah, blah, blah. And I got the gig, man. I got the gig. And then when I reported to to the teaching, they gave me a schedule that reflects my life. My, the classes I teach is introduction to Afro-Cuban music, introduction to Brazilian music, double bass integration, polyrhythms, drum set short reading, drum set basics. Uh, what else I teach? The molar technique, which I design and uh, teach there. Um, and I teach a bunch of private lessons. I'm a, a advisor for the department, a advisor for the students. I sit on an educational committee designing courses for work. So it's, it's, it's a busy work, but it's a work that um, is a full time. But I love now that I'm 50, I'll be 51 in August. And I love helping the People, young people from 16 to 19 to 20 college students, uh, people who come from high school, teach them a little bit about service and how to help humanity with our music. And I try, I don't force anything. I want them to do whatever they want, but I make them aware of the possibilities of changing the world to a better place through music, our music, to music education and to performance we can do, not everybody wants to do that, but, you know, people like yourself, you're doing that. You know, you are, you are helping so many people with your, with your, with your products. So, uh, let me, let me jump in here. Um, cause you know, men, you mentioned uh, the products, you have a, a whole 
a catalog of books and and other stuff that that you've written, and we'll we'll put links on the show notes page. I was going to say some of these artists and things. I, ha- I have a show notes page for every um, every podcast, uh, and and you can find that on my website if you go to danielglass.com forward slash podcasts. Uh, but I wanted to ask you in particular because something that that you and I have talked a lot about. You're a, you studied also along the way with Jim Chapin. Um, which, 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 you know, is one, just one more incredible thing that you've done. And, and I'm a Freddie Gruber guy. And we both kind of really dug into the concept of molar and, and understanding what that is. And I think molar is a very confusing subject for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you, you go on the internet and there's a million different people trying to say a million different things. Um, talk just a little bit, cause I have your molar book and I've worked out of it. It's, it's incredible stuff. And I've learned a lot about understanding molar better and the mechanics of it from you. But, um, you know, what, what, what's sort of your approach or philosophical thought process about what it, what molar is for those who don't know, or maybe heard it, molar is, uh, was a gentleman named Sanford molar who came up with a way of playing strokes that would allow you to get multiple bounces essentially for one out of one stroke. And so you could get two bounces, three bounces, four bounces. That, that's a, the, the basics of the molar. It's a way of moving, you know, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a stroke or, or what you'd call it, but what's your, what's your take on molar and uh, how did that, how did you arrive at your book, uh, your molar book on that? Uh, yeah, just one second. Uh, another part of my, you know, a cat has nine lives, right? <laughs> I, I, I started with heavily with Alan Dawson for eight years on and off. Alan Dawson was the teacher of Tony Williams and you know all that, Alan Dawson. And he was a guru at Berkeley for yes, many years. Yes, and I also studied and still do with Gary Shafee for many years, many, many, many years, and I still do. And and Jim Shafee and a little bit of Freddie Gruber. But here's my shtick on um, on the hand technique and all, all that, that stuff that um, – comes from Jim Shaping and uh, Joey Morello and, uh, you know, uh, um, Maurice Pavic and, uh, you know, the Masters and uh, George Lawrence Stone and James Burns Moore and all those guys. I don't spend – a lot of times you, you see a teacher and they spend so much time with the technical uh, nomenclature and the technical ways of moving and you can make – you can spend years – just to be able to play one stroke perfectly, and if you want to see somebody doing that, I mean, look at look at Dan, Daniel Glass. Look at you play. When I saw your hands, your hands, you took that to a level that's probably one of the highest levels I ever seen. When you explained to me the symmetry and the form of Daniel's hand, if you never check him out, get a Skype class with him because it's really perfect. Now, molar technique to me, if you wanna take lessons from me on the molar technique. The student that's going to benefit the most from me is the guy that already understands the motion of the molar because I kind of took that and all I worried about now is how can I use, manipulate the bounce of the molar to create melodic accents, right? So what I call the um, molar melodies. So I took the motion that Jim Shape taught me the the two, three, and four motion, and then I start to develop what can I do with that. By, by just to interrupt by two, three, and four motion, what you mean is striking once and getting two bounces for that one stroke, or striking no, no. once and getting three bounces. No, one is just no bounce. It's just down and up. There is no bounce involved, right? It's just uh-huh. down and then up with the wrist, which I call in my system M two for 
molar two. I see. No bounce. It's just a downstroke and a molar upstroke. I see. No bounce involved. The three is down for me, bounce, and then free up. one, and a up. Okay. And the four is down, bounce, bounce, up. And then I did the hybrids. I did five and six and seven and eight and nine. Ten, I don't use as much, but I could. Eleven, I don't use as much. Uh, uh, Twelve, I use a lot. Thirteen, not as much. Fourteen, not as much. Sixteen, I use a lot. Mm. So I went from two to sixteen. And then I create those melodies. I create two matrices, one in triplets and one in duple few. If you don't, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, it's like basically if you start rolling with a molar roll, a molar technique, you have a sound of a single stroke roll, and then you get those accents. Right. So I I figure out a whole vocabulary with the molar that you're gonna generate. And I start mixing them up and making rows, and then I put that on the hi-hat and on the right cymbal, and then I just, with the hand and foot, you know, it's, it, I create a whole vocabulary with that, which is beyond just most guys that you see online describing the molar technique. I don't know if you'd be able to hear this on the podcast, but they would go like, they, they refer to the molar as a role, right? And the difference, I guess, is I look at the molar as a system of manipulating bounce and how those accents that you're going to create can create melodic accents that you can use for for soloing and also timekeeping on the hi-hat on the right cymbal and also ostinatos with your left hand and right hand and backbeat embellishment of backbeats on shuffles and rocks things which you have accented notes and ghost notes surrounding that accent. So it's kind of hard to... Um, uh, put into words, but yeah, it's a whole. It's it's a it's a, a lot of actual practical application, though. I think, which is which is what I, which is what I love about it. Um, you know, I think too often people use molar as like a party trick. You know, just to show how fast they can play either a group of three or a group of two in in one hand. You know, but when it comes to well, what would you actually do with this in a real musical situation? They, you know, there's no application. So I, I that's what I like about your your book. And certainly, if people want to check it out, they can go to your website. Obviously, and pick up all all your books. You have a lot of stuff about polyrhythms as well. Write a book on polyrhythmic yeah. playing and but a the, double bass book too. Yeah, the Molo thing. If you go to my YouTube channel, I have posted songs. Mm. applying with music applications of the Molo technique. There is one that's really cool that everybody can get. It's from the book of Tommy Igo book, a song called um, Endure. I don't know if you have a chance to see that, Daniel. It's, one of uh, the, um, yeah, I've seen it. One of the, uh, uh, so one of his play-alongs from the, uh, um, from his, uh, what is his? Uh, yeah, his book, Groove Essentials. Groove Essentials, that's it, yeah. And, and that song is great. So, And I have posted other things in there that you can look and it's just molar all over the place, you know. It's mm. not molar; it's music, but he's using the molar to using to do that. Yeah, and it's it's amazing to watch a video, uh, some of the videos of you. We'll we'll definitely post one of those on the show notes page as well. well thank of you, you, thank you, ripping around the kit, uh, but but using the different uh, molar approaches, which is which is cool. We're we're just we just have a few minutes left, Henrique. So one, what I would like to. Um, what I would like to let folks know is that you and I are working on a book project right now, and uh, that's right. That's maybe, right. Maybe you can, since um, you know, you, it, it relates to what you teach at Berkeley. Maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what led to this, and um, you sure. know, in in that respect, because this is sort of 
not all that technical. It's a little bit more practical, you know, as far as yeah, um, yeah. practical skills, styles, that kind of thing. Yeah. Real quick, we should put a link with the Moller book, the Polyrhythm book, a Brazilian book. Absolutely. I just finished an Afro-Cuban book, which I just recorded uh, three weeks ago. Amazing tracks for you guys for this Afro-Cuban book, which with a great Leo Blanco piano and just Santerian bass. But anyway, so there is all those books. All this music that I'm talking to you about, a life worth of experience is on those books. I'm sharing that with you, and it's not from... From the book, it's from, the, from my life, it's things that work. But anyway, here's what happens. Uh, Daniel Glass is an expert, in my opinion, in the opinion of, of many, on the history of rock. Yeah, is that right? Is, you agree, right, uh, Daniel? You are an expert. I, I wrote that. a book called The Ultimate History of Rock and Roll Drumming. Yeah. I don't know if that makes me an expert, but I did write a book. About you, it. you are an expert. <laughs> and what Daniel did for us, he, he helps. If you're teaching or studying rock, buy all his books on the subject, especially the... The uh, the history of rock drumming. What's the name of the title? The the uh, the ultimate history of rock and roll drumming. Yeah, by that it's amazing, amazing. Uh, anyway, so what happens is this: I teach at Berkeley. I'm gonna go my six years. I can't believe that. And one thing that I have is high volume teaching. We have over 730 drummers, and I see 200 and 240 drummers every week. Wow! Right, and I teach a class that I use Daniel's one of his books. The one that we just mentioned. And this subject is very difficult to teach. How are you going to study the history of rock in one semester? How are you going to do that? It's impossible. So through the years, through try and error, and studying Daniel's material, we start knowing each other. What are we? What Daniel and I are, are doing, we are combining my high-volume teaching experience and needs to with his historical knowledge and we put this together as a study guide, and you can jump in on any second to add or correct or and to to give you a practical way to to uh, to do a lifetime of studies, but with small bites, digestible uh, digestible lessons that are that are going uh, more instead of going vertically, you're going horizontal. What I mean by that, we're gonna help you to understand shuffle grooves, swing shuffle grooves, eight-note rock grooves, 16-note grooves, New Orleans, funk, odd meters, but not just grooves. We're going we're gonna to talk about the music that you're going to play with that. Who are the artists? What are the records? How you study that? We're going to talk about how to make charge. Basically, we're going to share with you what we do professionally, how, how you go about developing a repertoire and application of that. In other words, if you ask somebody like Daniel Glass to sit down and, hey, Daniel, show us some shuffles. He can, if I'm a producer and he's in a studio and he plays a shuffle and I don't like it, he's going to have probably 50 or 60 different ones that he can play. So he has a repertoire of applications of shuffles that he can use and and we have that with other groups, correct, Daniel? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great explanation. Uh, is that we're we're sort of trying to take the idea of what is rock and pop drumming, which is what you have to teach, you know, in one right. semester, say in twelve class periods, and how do you at least get students started down the road? How do you break things up in a practical way that you know? And you've done a great job with it. You know, it's like uh, you know, twelve, thirteen units, something like that. 
uh, based on one unit per week. And it's it's a lot of material, but at least the way you know the way you've organized it, it gets people on the road. So the the goal is to create this this workbook or study guide, like you said, that that um, just introduces people to a lot of different stuff, but in a very kind of organized way. So in you know it's not a, a thousand page book; it's going to be maybe eighty page book. Uh, and the idea is to to really distill everything down so that it's all it's all in here with demonstrations, transcriptions, the whole nine yards. It is a shift, is a shift on the teaching concept because instead of teaching the students the beats, right, which is impossible in a week, I decide to teach them how do I know that stuff? So instead of teaching them what I know, how about teaching them to learn the way we learn? Right? How how a guy like me can sit down and play, let's say, you know, 30 different 16 rock grooves and you know, 50 different uh, shuffles. How did I learn how to do that? Well, if you learn that, then you don't need to learn a groove from me. You just learn how to learn, right? So the way I learned that right. is by listening to the records, transcribing, and going on the bandstand and applying the knowledge. You know, you get the knowledge, but you got to test the knowledge. What do you mean by that? You're going to learn music. You're going to go on the bandstand and test it. Does dig it work? Your, dig your claws in. <laughs> yeah. If it doesn't Throw work, out your claws. you're fired. If it works... Is great. So after you, after many years, after fifty years, forty year career, you're gonna figure out. Okay, every time I play this type of gig, this works. So not based on statistics. So now you become wise. So wisdom only come with a, a collector of knowledge, testing the knowledge, and then experience. So he, when you get wise, what is a wise musician do? He knows what works and he knows what doesn't work. Eric Clapton was interviewed about playing with Steve Gadd. He said, why you like to play Steve Gadd? What, why Steve Gadd is different? Eric Clapton said, Steve Gadd plays the right thing right away. Mm, yeah. And what is the right thing? It's so hard to, to say what that is. But obviously, Steve Gadd is listening to the music. He understands the artist. And he plays the right thing. You know. So anyway, hopefully, the, the idea with this book certainly will be able to, to apply it in the courses that you're teaching on this subject matter, but it'll definitely be available to, to the general public as well. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it and, uh, and we, you know, hopefully it's going to be out in September. <laughs> God willing, it'll be out in fall, September. Fall for sure. Before fall. Christmas for sure. Yeah. Fall semester. But, uh, all right, man. Well, Henrique de Almeida, um, this, I, it's been just great having you here, and and I learned so much, man, that I didn't know about your story because I was always like, how is this Berkeley, and then Brazil, and then the Air Force, and then Mississippi? Like, it's all very, it's all very confusing. Is that interesting path, right? It is. It's a really interesting path, and every at every step along the way, you were making it happen at the highest levels and deep into whatever it was, wherever you were, and uh, that's that's an incredible an incredible life, you know, to have lived and talk about just making the most of, of it, you know, wherever you are. So, and, and let me say this, thank you so much for having me as a guest. And also thank you for all you do for the drum community, all your, all your work, all your commitment. I know it's so hard to spend a lifetime of commitment to the music where sometimes a life of an artist is not like the easiest one. Right. So no. thank you for your commitment and also thank me for allowing me to share some thoughts with your audience and I close with this. Here's the things I want to, I want you guys to get out of this. First of all, follow your heart, follow your passion, have faith. Don't quit. 
when you fall, the, the reason you should do what's in your heart, not what other people, don't try to please other people. Play what you love because when you do what you love, you're going to fall and it's hard to get up when you're going somewhere that you want to go, you know? So follow your passion and then forget about yourself. Get skills to help others, help, help other people. What can you do to the humanity better world? How can you help the world to be better with your drumming? If you, we're all drummers here, I believe. So how can we help the world by being a drummer? Well, you've been too philosophical. No, if you're on a gig, how can you help the band? How, how, what can you do to help the band on the bandstand and not of the bandstand? Be humble. Get inspired by those that plays better than you. Help the ones that, that needs help from you. Teach other people. Be humble. And, and, keep, and keep studying, I think, is the other thing, too. A lot of times yeah. we get to a certain level and we feel like, well, I, I know it all. But, you know, as I think, you know, many people have said, sort of the more, the more that you know, the more you realize that you don't know anything. You know, I think that's... Remember the day you and I Skyping and you had a pad and you showed me something. You gave me an exercise. And I felt like a total beginner. I, I thought I was in kindergarten. You showed me some, you know, I can't... Well, you know, as did I, when you showed me your molar stuff. <laughs> I was unbelievable, like, wow. Unbelievable. Hey, man, thank you so much. This My pleasure. Awesome. Yes, thanks so much. And um, I'm sure that uh, you'll be hearing a lot more from Henrique as, uh, as we move forward in time. Thanks so much for listening to the Daniel Glass Podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. And please make sure to jump over to iTunes and give us a rating on this podcast. Whether you liked it, whether you hated it, one star or five stars, every rating truly helps. Let those funny people smile. How can there be a virgin aisle? Diggy, diggy, doo, diggy, doo, diggy, diggy, doo, diggy,